I, I honestly believe that culture can change uh, on a dime if, if driven the right way. Um, and, and really what it comes down to is being very specific about what your intent is. And so the example that I use is making sure that your trailer matches your movie, right? And we've all had that experience, right? We, we, we go see a, a trailer for a movie and it's advertising this incredible comedy. You're gonna think you're gonna laugh, it's gonna be wonderful. And you get to the theater and you know they, they have a black and white drama in German with Chinese subtitles. You're not gonna be happy, right? You're gonna leave, you're gonna quit, you're gonna walk out the door. It's not what you expect. Junkies podcast brought to you by Cardavera, a leadership development ecosystem that helps you grow your people, grow your business, and grow your life. We're back here today with Tim Todorai, and the title is Embracing Beltless Leadership, Growing Your Business Through Humble Leadership and Culture Commitment. As you're going to learn, Tim has been studying martial arts for decades, and that's where the title comes from, Embracing Beltless Leadership. Tim is known as a contrarian, and you're going to hear that so much today in this conversation. We're going to talk about what it means to be a beltless leader and engage in beltless leadership, the importance of getting past the illusion of completeness as a leader. He's going to talk about the fact that culture change can actually happen very quickly and that many of the obstacles to culture change are just simply our mindsets. As always, we're going to talk about the importance of culture in your organization, especially if you want to grow and scale it, and what it really takes to live your culture. You're also going to hear more about this amazing truth, that your culture trailer must match your culture movie. Welcome to the Leadership Junkies podcast, where we explore leadership, business, and personal growth to help you grow your business and live a richer life. We're your hosts, Jeff Dishwitz and Craig Matthews. We believe that leaders have to put their people first. And if you don't have time to grow your people, then you're not leading. Get ready for conversations that will challenge your thinking and help you transform your leadership and your business. Welcome to your bigger business and bigger life. We are excited to be back here, and we have a local guest, at least for Craig, because Tim Todorai is coming to us from the Raleigh-Durham area, also known sometimes as the Triangle, not the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, <laughs> people come to the Triangle in North Carolina to grow, not to disappear. Yeah. Uh, Tim is an HR consultant. His company is called Plotline Leadership, and he specializes in talent and performance management. He's a fractional uh, chief HR officer, career advisor, author. I love this. Ever the contrarian. Yes, we, <laughs> you are in good company here, Tim. <laughs> yeah. Tim approaches practice with a playful smile and an eyebrow up. And we're going to talk about some really fascinating elements of leadership and culture today. So welcome, Tim. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, great to have you. So, Tim, give us a little bit of the Tim Todorai backstory. Sure. I started my career outside of HR, actually. I was in sales for a long time, went into project management, um, was in sales operations, and then shifted into HR because, frankly, I wasn't that great at sales. I, I thought I was going to be uh, a, a rock star in it, and I, I found my calling uh, doing uh, two things that I, that I love. It was, it was all about teaching um, through the learning and development, so I got my start in learning and development and then went into HR and really ran through that um, every discipline within HR. And that was kind of fun. So uh, 
walked through all of that and then ultimately got into a place where I was a head of HR for a few companies and, and enjoyed it. So let's talk about the state of HR for a moment. Uh, I, I have the opportunity to speak to a lot of HR leaders. I just was in Indianapolis speaking last about 10 days ago at a conference there. And one question that I hear constantly, almost a complaint is, why don't I have a seat at the table? So can we talk, let's talk about that topic, because that's about leadership, because leaders get a seat at the table. Yeah, so I, I think you do have a seat. You just need to recognize that that's a, a truth. And it's funny, when I look at the state of HR, there's a lot of parallels that, that can be driven um, aligned to what happened with IT. So if you think about it, HR tends to complain a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. beat them up a bit, and I'm including myself in this. They'll say that, well, we, we grew from personnel, and so we have that stigma attached to us. And because we grew from personnel, um, there's people look at us that way. We're the rule keepers and the form fillers outers and all of that. Um, and it's hard for us to then to be taken seriously. And I will look at them and say, do you realize that there was a time not so long ago where the IT department was the guys who plugged in the projector, <laughs> right? And, and, and that's the deal. But what happened is, is IT did a phenomenal job of learning from project management. So if you ever talk to a really good IT professional, they will talk about what it takes to get a project done, how much time, what the cost is, what the, um, you know, the, the resources that they need, and they'll build a business case for every single thing that they want to do. Yeah. And I think if HR leverages that same rigor, they'll be able to do the same very, very easily. And so I, I think that's just the, the switch that you need to pull on is just approach things differently and you'll be very successful. I think what I've seen is a, a big difference in HR professionals. Some are really focused on doing the compliance and the benefits and things like that. Okay. It's necessary, but that's not what's going to get you to the seat at the table. I think it's the strategic perspective in understanding the impact on business. That to me seems to get what that's, that's where you get at the table. I was that IT guy who looked at it from a strategic standpoint and was a, and had the seat at the table as well. And it was, it was about coming back to them and saying, okay, this is going to be the impact on the company. You know, these are the dollars and cents, but moreover, it gives us capabilities that, that our, our competitors don't have. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, you know, I think that, um, all of HR has importance to it. So yes. you definitely don't want to belittle some of the things that are more transactional, uh, mm -hmm. that are legalistic, because it, you know, part of that business case is making sure that you're doing the right thing, that you're legally yep. compliant, that you're not getting into uh, issues around that. And that has as much value as, hey, I'm gonna help you increase your revenue or drive your efficiency or doing that. But I think it's just the language that you use, talking to the audience that you have, mm -hmm that will resonate better. And that can happen across the HR spectrum. And it's just something that, you know, we all need to learn how to do a little bit better. Yeah. Well, Tim, I had an interesting conversation when I was in, in Indianapolis, I guess it was two weeks ago today, um, a young uh, HR person came up and said that she recognized from the program that she actually had a seat at the table, <laughs> but she wasn't using it. Wow. That she was showing up as that transactional, uh, you know, compliance person, and she was given space for more, hmm. and realized she wasn't bringing more. 
So how much of this is about do, just doing different with the seat you've already got? You know, it's interesting. I had a, a mentor one time who said to me, um, if you have too much to do, sometimes you just have too much to do. And <laughs> what he meant by that was it's really hard to do the strategy and the tactics at the same time. And, you know, any, you talk to any recruiter on the planet and you look at their workload and then say, hey, can you talk to me about your, your strategy for recruiting and your system implementation and all that? They're going to go, are you kidding me? I got to sift through a thousand resumes, you know, by noon. <laughs> um, and so I think there, there has a little bit of practicality that comes with how do you systematically get rid of things in your, your daily work that nobody cares about? And this is, you know, first kind of step is I would say to this person is if you want to focus more on the strategic elements of it, be ruthless with your time. Hmm. You know, take every single thing that you do and put it through a funnel and think about what can you eliminate, automate, delegate, and then come down to the bottom and say, this is the only thing that I'm going to focus on. And that's across the board. I mean, it's funny, I did this, a study like this for a large organization one time, and HR did 419 separate things. <laughs> How many of them were adding value? I don't know, right? So you, eliminate, <laughs> you eliminate those, you have more space to, to actually show up. Yeah, and that, that's something everybody can do. Let's talk about that in the context of leadership in general, because Craig and I, based upon, you know, when we're out in the world, we hear this regularly from positional leaders. This is typically C-suite or equivalent. They recognize that leadership is about people. But their biggest comment is, I don't, I wish I had more time for my people. And so my question is, because this certainly applies to HR, but you see it at the other level, at the, you know, president level, VP level, these leaders are saying, I've got other things to do. And frankly, my obnoxious response is, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> right. Because you're, this is your job. Yeah. And so talk about that challenge for leaders of the doing part and the, the tactical part that can become consuming and you don't make time or space for your people. Well, I, I think what happens is people overestimate how much time it's going to take to have an impact on other folks. Hmm. So, hmm. You, you know, and great point where I mean, what I mean by that specifically is sometimes people make the mistake of thinking if I give someone feedback, if I take a minute or two to give somebody feedback, then I'm going to get drawn into an hour long coaching conversation. <laughs> right. And you know, my response to that is you can give people feedback in 30 seconds or less, right? It's the, and, you know, so I think some of us, Craig and I were joking, we, we met um, through speaker associations and so forth. And it's so powerful when you come off stage and someone says, um, hey, you know, you, you, I really like this specific thing about what you just did, or you could be more effective if you did this and yep. then shut up. Right. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, that would be huge for, for folks to do. Yes. Um, I think that's a great point. And it'd be great if people had someone walking behind them with like a stopwatch, because <laughs> I've done that at a few speaking engagements and workshops where we're talking about feedback and I'll do an exercise where I call it a blessing. You don't have to call it that, but it's really getting into the details of how someone did such a great job and how it had such a positive impact. Yeah. It really helps. In fact, I had one person start crying and I was making it all up. <laughs> and they said, I've never heard feedback like that, but I have someone time it. 
And I'll say, so how long was that? And they'll say 22 seconds. <laughs> and then say to the audience, so you don't have time for that. And I think you're right. I think people make up that it's going to take a lot longer. And I think part of the challenge is they tend to schedule it. Mm. And if you have to schedule it, it does take time because it's going to take you, you know, 10 emails or five minutes to schedule it, something that could have taken a minute to actually just do it. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's it's much more genuine when it happens in the moment. Right? Totally I mean, you, it's you get it immediately, you get it in a genuine way, and it's just better for everybody to hear it uh, in that moment. And it's always better if you have if you're locked eyes. <laughs> you know, let, let them see that you actually mean it. <laughs> not not through a text, not through an email. Or looking out the window saying, Hey, by the way, that was yeah. an awesome job in the meeting. <laughs> yeah. You see the skyline right. today? <laughs> Look at the building. <laughs> yeah. You see that you see that all the time in, in social events, right? Where the, where the person is talking to somebody and they they go up on their toes looking over them to see who's more important in the room. Oh, <laughs> that's oh, awful. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's awful. Well, speaking of that, you you have this this theory that humble leadership is something that we need to aspire to. So talk to us maybe a little bit about what your perspective is on that. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think uh, sometimes people um when I say humble leadership, they automatically think authentic uh, leadership. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes that, that gets confused because it's, it's sort of a buzzword now. And um, authentic leadership is important, but uh, I usually tell folks that there's no inherent good or bad in authentic leadership, right? The whole definition is it just is what it is. So I joke sometimes, I say Attila the Hun was an authentic leader, right? He brought his whole <laughs> self to work. I don't want to work for that dude. Right. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's not about, um, you know, being your whole self because you're going to there's going to be a lot of uh, jerks that, that are there and doing that. Um, the other aspect to it that gets a little bit confusing is, you know, when people fake it or they try to think about what should be important. And, you know, you hear this a lot around you should fake it till you make it or act as if and all of those things. And, you know, that can really be a detriment to your, your leadership view. Because mm. when I, I think I'm a writer, so I think about everything in, a, in the context of a story. You know, what is your leadership arc that got you to where you want to be or where you are today? And typically, there's like three patterns, right? You're either ordained a leader, right? You could be <laughs> the king of you know, England. Okay, here, you know, there you go, great. And there's a lot of king and queen VPs out there, right? That, ha that yeah. happened to it, but that's rare. You, you, can, you can step up to be a leader because you know everyone else stepped back at the time and you know you you had displayed a little courage in the moment but that's sort of opportunistic you don't get a lot of those opportunities but for most of us in the world leadership comes through hard won experience education time and the build up to that and everything you learn along the way makes you worthy of that leadership role that you have and once you've gone through that trial, you develop a little bit of humility along the way because you realize how many folks have had a hand in making you, you know, who you are and what you know. And then you approach things a little bit differently. And, and for me, when I think about humble leadership, there, there are three, you know, characteristics that I would say that work really well for, for leaders that are humble that do, just do things differently. Number one is that they, they learn on the job. They consistently mm. learn. They never stop. The second is that they develop workarounds for things that they don't know. And the third is they trust their teams. 
and they leverage their teams to get stuff done and they're open to learning from them. Now, would and, you say on that last part, that's, that's also asking for help? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Because, you, you know, it, and it's funny. I mean, most of, most of these lessons or the way that I, I crystallize this hum, humble leadership view was, you know, as a, as a kid and through my twenties uh, and thirties and beyond, I, I trained in martial arts and I had a really uh, amazing teacher who was the definition description of a, of a humble leader. Hmm. And, you know, she, she would always, and it's funny. So it was a woman and it was a woman in the, in the eighties in the, in this kind of oh. a, a discipline, right? So think of, think about that. So somebody, yeah. you know, the, the, the most kind of, um, discipline where you think it'd be ferocious and all that. And she's like, Oh, confident enough to say, you know, let me put myself second. Right. Mm. And, and one of the things that, that she reminded us of was this concept of pushing a cart uphill. And what she meant was, she says, like any practice that you do, anything that you're going to chase in life, whether it's martial arts, a job or whatever, is you have to work at it every day because mm. the moment that you stop pushing that cart uphill, it rolls back. Right. And you're going to lose ground. So you have to work all the time. And it was sort of funny because I remember our promotions that we had, you know, you go from rank to rank. And it was one time we had a, a bunch of uh, folks getting their green belts. Hmm. And once they, they went through this three hour promotion, really tough kind of promotion, got all the, all the work, all the kata fought, just got beat up, thrown on the floor, all this kind of stuff. And he said, congratulations, you've made your green belt. You are now the lowest ranking green belt on the planet. <laughs> Class starts tomorrow. <laughs> and, and it's funny because what, what I learned later, you learn you know, many years later, is that um, you never earn a belt until you give it away. And the ultimate irony is you never give up your black belt. Mm. And so you never quite earn it. You're always earning it every day. And if you keep that in mind, then it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to walk into a situation. I have to learn from others. I have to be open because I don't know everything. Hmm. Wow. Well, I, I love that you, you put in that word because I was thinking that word and then you brought it in at the end of what you shared, Tim, the word earned. Hmm. Uh, because if I feel that's a phrase I use a lot that everything, I believe everything is earned hmm. um, in terms of I need to earn your um, trust. I need to actually earn your respect. I need to earn the, I have to, I call it earning the right. I have to earn the right. If I'm in sales, for example, I have to earn the right even to have a conversation with you. Mm -hmm. I'm not entitled to anything. And it feels like you're saying that there's leaders who are humble have an earn it mindset. And those that are not have an entitled mindset to some degree. Is that in there? That, that's absolutely in there. And, and yeah. you know, one thing that, that she would talk about is, trying to avoid the illusion of completeness. Mm -hmm. So the thought is that, oh, I've made it. I've hit whatever <laughs> level of success and now I can rest. And you see that physically where you get, you know, the, the old time sensei who's now completely out of shape and is just walking around and barking orders. Well, show me how that appears in, in work, right? It does. Right. So you got to stay hungry. You got to stay humble. You got to continuously learn. And that's just part one, right? That's just the first key that you have to do to, to kind of maintain that attitude and that mindset to, to be good at, at, at what you want to do from a humble perspective. I think the, the whole aspect of constant learning is so important. I think when people advance, oftentimes they're not given training for leadership. And so they have to kind of learn as they go. 
and depend on the role models that they've had before, which frankly, that's why we get a lot of continuing <laughs> dysfunction. So, you know, going out there and saying, okay, I want to be an expert leader, not just an expert in my function. There's a different skill set. How do you mm -hmm. approach that when, when you are advancing people in your organization, Tim? So it's interesting. The part you said that really resonated with me is that you can be lucky and have great leaders and you can be unlucky and learn from bad yeah. leaders and pick up those traits, right? So when you're thinking about moving people through the organization, um, you, you want to create a, a place or an environment where you're going to be passing down good practices that work. Absolutely. But at the same token, you have to be open to the idea that everything you do is wrong. <laughs> everything you say is wrong. And, you and the reason, reason I say that is because it kind of it goes into our, our, our second principle that we focus on, which is the workaround. And the workaround in, in the martial art world is I just got punched in the face. What do I do to not get punched in the face in round two? <laughs> I have to do something different. So everything I was taught, everything I was doing, this person in front of me, this situation in front of me is different than what I expected. I have to adjust. I have to create a workaround. And so when I think about um, the ultimate accountability for success and performance in an organization falls on the individual. Yes, I might be lucky and have a wonderful teacher. I might be lucky and be in, a, in an organization that supports me. But if not, tough luck. Right. Because you're the one who's going to get punched in the face or, or get their hand raised. So what do you have to do? You have to take in your environment. You have to think around you know, what's in front of you and then figure out how uh, to adjust. Because it's funny, I think, I think it was Chuck Norris who, who said, um, it's OK to lose. It's not OK to lose the same way twice. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you're also um, paraphrasing Mike Tyson. Right, exactly. <laughs> everybody, everybody thinks they've got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Yeah. And, 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 and if you read military history, they say the same thing. Everybody's got a great plan until you confront the enemy and then mm -hmm. everything changes. And what, what are you going to do in that moment? Uh, I want to come back to humility because this mm -hmm. is a topic that I think, I think most leaders, if you ask them, do you think it's important to be humble as a leader? They're either going to say yes or they're going to say something like most of the time because they, they believe there's some time that they need to be something different. And that may be a different topic. And I would say most leaders think they're humble, actually think they are. Um, and I, I'll just add this other piece. Years ago, a friend of mine said to me, Jeff, you know, uh, he said, in my experience, people either are born humble. They just sort of grew up with that in their DNA and other people got humble. So can you talk to, I, I know that's a wide ranging question, but talk more about <laughs> what humility actually is and what it looks like in practice. Hmm. So it, it's, it's interesting because you, you said that last part, it made me smile because we used to, as a teacher, you're always thinking about what you need to do to um, advance your, your students and in the workplace as a manager to advance your, um, your person, you know, your, your direct report. So is it a, uh, a view of pushing people up and giving people confidence that they need or showing them what they don't know. Hmm. Because it was in you know, the old saying, it, it, since they would say, you know, I taught you everything you know, not everything I know. <laughs> right? Right. And so you, you got to go back. So to, to be direct around it, uh, um, the, the one way that I would describe uh, humbleness is, or humility is 
a practice that we would use called belts off leadership. Hmm. And what we meant by that was this is back again in the in the mid 80s, um, late 80s, where styles were very specific. Where you would you would practice Japanese karate, and that's all you would do. It's not like today where it's everything's mixed up. And you would do that for a lifetime and adjust. Well, what, what this um, teacher did was she would she would invite people from different styles to free classes and say, come into the, the dojo and let's work out. Let's learn from each other. Okay. One rule. Before you step in, you have to take off your gi. You have to mm. put on sweats so that nobody knows what your rank is. Nobody knows where you came from. And you're going to go and have this, these, these um, sessions with no bravado, no assumptions, just work out and learn. And if I take that to how you practice as a leader today, right? It's, you know, are you able to remove your rank? That is brilliant. Right. And, and, and it was so exciting because we learned more from those sessions because the person you were talking, you were working out with, they might be a white belt in a different style who has a different technique. Mm -hmm. And it's funny. So I remember this, this is now like years and years ago, but I was doing a demonstration and I got schooled. It was the most <laughs> hysterical thing. And it was in front of an audience. It was ridiculous. It was like a, a demonstration and it was a kid's demonstration. And so I, I, I was showing how people can get out of different techniques. And so I had people grab my hand. So just picture of standing there, I have a, a eight-year-old grabbing my, my uh, wrists and I said, okay, I, and I said, I'm gonna grab your wrist and you get out of it and let him do it. So I was expecting, what is an eight-year-old gonna do? They're gonna try to kick you in the groin. They're gonna try to shake around like a fish. They're gonna run to do it. And I'm prepared for all these things because I've seen it a hundred times. You know what he did? He dropped to one knee and ran his little body right through mine and knocked me on <laughs> my butt in front of a whole group of people. <laughs> and I said, what, do you, what happened? What, where did you learn that? Is your dad like an Aikido specialist or a judo guy or whatever? And he's like, no, I just did what came natural. And I go, that's not natural. He says, it is in football. Oh. And so here, and it's years years ago, but I learned from a child yeah. a totally different thing. Now, imagine if I said, well, you're not the senior most blah, blah, blah. No. So flash forward to today, when you think about the working environment, how you remain humble is you're open to learning from everybody, whenever, wherever, because you don't know what that person offers. And if you go with yeah. those blinders on, you know, that's the ultimate in objectivity. Wow, that is so good. And I wonder, you know, do you, do you encourage people to actually ask their people, you know, what should I know that I don't know? Because, you know, ultimately, you're, you're over a particular area as a leader. And the, the people working with you have probably more technical expertise than you do. And they may know certain things that, that you should know so that you can be a better leader in that area. Yeah. So that, that's a really great um, example. And I'll give you one from the, from the business world that strikes right to that. So uh, a, a while ago, I was the head of a project management office that specialized in M&A, right? Mm -hmm. And so we would look at companies from an HR perspective and do all of the due diligence integration. And my role was to be that air traffic controller manager within that context. So by definition, I was working with a host of people, both within HR and outside of HR that knew monumentally more than I did mm -hmm. about different specialties. So I had one person who their whole job was a 401k. That was their whole thing, right? Wow. I could never possibly manage that. 
you had to rely on the expertise because you go in with the assumption that every one of your specialists knows more than you and you have to trust them. And that is probably the biggest change for people as they move through their careers is when you let go of your um, subject matter expertise of, I know the most everybody in the room and you say, I'm, I'm helping. I'm trying to learn. I'm trying to to manage that. And that's just a totally different skill set. I love the analogy that you're using with air traffic controller because they don't know how to fly the plane, (laughs) but they're coordinating so that people don't crash into each other. (laughs) Exactly. So so Tim, you've talked about trust a lot, and that's a topic that comes up a lot on this, on our show uh, and certainly in organizations. Mm -hmm. And you said that humble leaders trust their team. And typically the conversations we hear from leaders is leaders complaining, feeling that their people don't trust them. Talk about the role of leadership in building that trust. Hmm. Because to me, they're, they're missing the point. They've got it backwards. Your team doesn't trust you probably because you don't trust them. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, anything you want to see, you have to do first. Mm. And there's the whole concept of a shadow of a leader. And if you look around and you're in a hectic organization, everybody's running around with their hair on fire, look in the mirror. You're probably doing that, (laughs) you know, and and it it all comes back to you. So whatever your demeanor is, however you express things, that is, um, you know, the the, the saying, right? There's there's no bad students, they're bad teachers. And so you have to exemplify that first. And you know, also be honest when it's not popular. You, you know, the, I, I go back to, you know, we said earlier, we're joking about contrarian. I, I am very much that. I like to call out things that I don't particularly believe in and be honest about it. So mm. I, I give you a specific example that may not be popular. There's a, there's a, a view of um, vulnerability, right? That, um, hey, people should be in, in vulnerable. And there's a lot of different definitions of that. But some folks may have a, a sense that in order to be vulnerable, I have to be emotional or I have to you know, do X, Y, and Z. And that's not necessarily true, right? So it, it's more about, in my view, honesty is like, hey, this is what I need, guys, to be successful. This is the support that I need from you. As an example, if I just went through something tough, I might need time. I might need you not to bother me. I might need you to give me space. If you went through that same situation, you might need a hug, right? You might need whatever. Okay, fine. It's not the same for everybody. And as long as I show you my cards first, you'll be more apt to show me yours. So true. Love that. I love that you highlighted that because, in fact, you just almost, well, mine's a little longer, but (laughs) basically (laughs) stated one section of the book I'm working on now about vulnerability to take the emotion out of it. Because people think vulnerability is about showing emotion. And often, and most of the time, it's not, actually. It's not at all, but people get caught up in that. Well, it's all about showing emotions, and I'm afraid to do that, and I can't really be fully emotional here. It's not appropriate, so I'm not going to be that, so I'm not going to be vulnerable. Yeah, you missed 98% of what this is really about. Yeah. I mean, isn't it really about just, just being able to say, hey, I'm human, I don't know this, or I messed up? you know, and, and owning it and saying, okay, now help me understand. So I don't do it again. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and that's where it, it allows you to lean on other people mm-hmm. because of the expertise. Well, Tim, I want to go back to, you have so many great phrases. I love your phrases. <laughs> so you talked about the illusion of completeness and 
I'd like you to talk more about that because when you say that, I feel that's the leader that thinks they have to know everything and actually believes they know everything. <laughs> is that what you're talking about? Or is there more to this illusion of completeness? It is. It is certainly that as a, as a component, there's a little bit more to it with you know, thinking that you have all the answers or think that you know all the answers or, hit, or think that you have hit a certain level. And it's this view that you're done, that you can now rest and be comfortable. And what I'm saying is you should never be comfortable because life isn't comfortable. Business is uncomfortable. You have to always be a little bit outside of your comfort zone uh, and then <laughs> leveraging others because otherwise there's no progress. And go back to the cart. It's falling down the hill. If you're comfortable, it's sliding down the hill. Well, I love that. And as you were saying that, I was thinking about the way that leaders often, uh, we talk, I talk a lot about blind spots. Mm -hmm. I think that's just such a huge issue. But when people say, I'm very aware of all my blind spots, <laughs> um, blind spots, that yeah, would probably right. fall into the illusion of completeness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, going before we started the podcast, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at this leadership thing. And that's, that's why, you know, Jeff and I kind of started it and just going through the podcast and listening to so many different people, including Jeff, I realized, wow, there's so much, so many nuances that I didn't know. And I feel like I've become a much better leader just for listening to the, you know, being part of these discussions and really learning on the job, so to speak. It, and so I highly encourage people to, you know, find that spot where you can be learning and being fully engaged in that learning process. It, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately you see, you see results over time. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me is um, you're turning some of the phrases on, on their heads. So uh, a lot of times you'll hear that people join companies and they leave managers, right? Very popular saying the reverse is true. Right. When you think, really? when, you, when you follow um, people and you look at their careers, oftentimes they follow great managers from place mm. to place. And that is, to me, a much more important uh, phenomenon that occurs because what you're, you're really looking at is managerial gravity. Right. What do you mm -hmm. do to your uh, managers that you can teach them to say people should be lined up at the door to work for you? I love and, and, that. And I believe in this so much that I don't think time to fill is an HR metric. Ooh. I think time to fill is a manager metric. <laughs> if you have an opening and you can't fill it, who's, whose fault is that? Wow. Now, there, there may be some anomalies. Okay, your company doesn't pay. There's a market charge. Okay, but uh, all things being equal, do they want to work for you? That's awesome. All right. And so if imagine you create a company where the folks that are given the privilege to lead others have people lined up. And it, it's not a, a selfless thing. It's because folks are saying, hey, if I go work for this guy, I'm going to look better in December than I did in January. I'm going to be, uh, there's a vested interest for me to go and do that. It's, yeah. It'll be fantastic. Well, you used a great word there, the privilege of leading. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. If you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, 
we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com confident to find out more. See you on the inside. The world's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Welcome back. Well, and let's, I want to go back to one another one of your great phrases and dig a little deeper, belts off leadership. <laughs> And when you said that, what came to me was this idea of leadership without role, title, or position. Right. And another, you know, would people follow you if you didn't have the belt of that title? And so speak to this idea of the ability for people, because, and this is going to transition us to culture, Mm -hmm. because you talked offline about culture can change quicker than you think. And we believe that's when people choose to step up and lead where they're at. So talk about that idea of people being able to lead, I think fall into your opportunistic category of the three you mentioned earlier. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the belts off leadership piece is, is all about project teams, right? So, you know, when I think about putting people together to run a project, it's, it's go back to school, right? When you think about school and you ran a project, you were put together with a bunch of folks that had, you know, different roles, different backgrounds. And then there was always the person who stepped up and did great. Others who kind of didn't. And there was a few who just shouldn't have been there in the first place. Right? right. So you put together a project team and that naturally happens. You see who steps up. And then the saying is like, everybody knows who's who in the zoo. It happens automatically. Right. You start to, you get people, no matter what their rank is, who's stepping up. And it's funny because it's so, it's such a natural thing. We all have a guy. Like I'm from, I'm from New York. So I say that all the time. I got a guy, I got a guy for this. I got a guy. I got a guy. Yeah, I got a guy. So, but I have a spreadsheet guy. I have a guy who knows data better than anybody else. I know, I know somebody who's, you know, the, the PowerPoint guru. I know somebody who's the website guy, all of these things. These are special skills that I can leverage on our project team to get stuff done. And then also you're open to being surprised by any of them. Because there, there, and this is funny because this goes to talent management, where 
you have to think about not only what people can do, but what do they want to do and what do they don't want to do anymore? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing because you could be really good at something that you want to give away and say, I'm done with it. But I think pulling together those project teams and letting them happen naturally is, is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. That, God, that is so fascinating. Um, it's interesting. You talked about everybody knows who that leader is, the one that steps up. And what struck me is that often the, there's one person who doesn't know who that is. And that's that leader <laughs> because that's the humility. And, and I, Craig's heard this over and over. You haven't, I keep always going back to this one scene in the show band of brothers yeah. where this Sergeant, not an officer is talking about, it's great. The unit has a new leader. And the guy looks at him and says, well, from what I hear, there's been a great leader for a long time. Who's done all the things for the men, supported them, had their back, kept them together. He says, you don't know who I'm talking about, do you? He goes, no, he goes, it's you. <laughs> because he led with a, a belts off leadership. Yeah. He had no title or position. He Humility. just did the right thing and was leading and he didn't see it. And mm -hmm. that to me is the epitome of humility. Mm, yes, absolutely. And there was a great thing that the person did to give him that feedback that say, look at your contribution and yeah. recognize it. You utilize it with purpose and intent going forward. So, so let's, let's talk about culture, because before we got on here, you were talking about how <laughs> culture had driven the success and growth and scale of so many businesses you've been a part of. You also talked offline about how people think cultural change takes a long time. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about the role of culture and how you can maybe change culture quicker than you think? Yeah, I, I honestly believe that culture can change uh, on a dime if, if driven the right way. Um, and, and really what it comes down to is being very specific about what your intent is. And so the example that I use is making sure that your trailer matches your movie. Right? <laughs> and we've all had that experience, right? We, we, we go see a, a trailer for a movie and it's advertising this incredible comedy. You're going to think you're going to laugh. It's going to be wonderful. And you get to the theater and you know, they, they have a black and white drama in German with Chinese subtitles. You're not going to be happy, right? You're going to leave. You're going to quit. You're going to walk out the door. It's not what you expected. Yeah, because only the scenes in the trailer, those were the best scenes in the whole movie. So, you know, everything else sucked. <laughs> so so it's, it's a little bit, it's, a, it's annoying, but companies make that mistake all the time because they're telling you what they think they should be rather than what they are. And they yeah. fail. And so I'll give you a con concrete example uh, of that. You have a company that goes out to market and they say, you know, we have the best training in the industry. You're going to come mm -hmm. here and you're going to get phenomenal training. You're going to grow your career. It's wonderful. And in fairness, they build a great training program. But their people are too busy to ever take the <laughs> training. They're booked out from day one. It's useless. Right? Yeah. You know, HR does this all the time. So another example, like, hey, I'm super proud of this. Um, you know, career ladder and lattice that we designed to move from position to position. And, you know, they, in fairness, again, they build it and it's wonderful. They advertise it and you come to the company and their managers hoard talent and say, that's my guy. He's not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. So one of the things that you can do around looking at speeding culture change is figuring out exactly who you want to be and then gut check every single system tool process in your company to ensure that it keeps the promise. And if it doesn't, if it breaks the promise, it's, it's funny, it's, it's a lot like writing, right? So when I think about writing that book, writing that movie, 
you know, I could start off with a really good premise and then I begin to write and I come to that middle, I'm doing some editing and I'm like, ah, oh, no, this doesn't work. The storyline doesn't jive. It's not, it's not working. I have two choices. I can edit my promise, which is heartbreaking, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not the book that you wanted to write, or you can edit your whole book, which is heartbreaking because it takes a lot of work. <laughs> but if you don't do one of them, you're toast, right? You have to do something. Such a great point. I, what you're saying here helps me kind of go back to our very first interview on this podcast with David Akers. And one of the things he says to the people that come in is, you will be better when you leave here than when you came in. Mm -hmm. And that's a promise. And he sets up the systems and, and the way that they, they manage so that that's true. You know, and that's the kind of thing where if I'm putting out a job requisition, I'm talking about those specific things that people are going to do and the kind of culture and, and things. And I would imagine that not everybody does that. They just talk about the position. But I think that, that companies that start to get what people really want out of a job, they start listing those things like you were talking about. You're going to get training. You have these other things. And you're absolutely right. You got to make sure that that movie that, that what they actually experience jives with that. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you don't, then there's going to be a, an instant incongruence. People will feel it and they'll, they're not going to want to be a part of it. Um, yeah. And they figure it out faster than you give them credit for. Right. If you lie to me on that part. <laughs> what, would you, what would you say about this, Tim? Because a lot of companies say they want to get better at culture. They say that. Mm -hmm. And they go and spend their time on developing like their core values, their mission and vision. <laughs> they spend all the time on clarifying it. But I would argue that, that that's the least important piece. I mean, yes, you need to have clarity, but that incongruity, if you're not walking it every day, it's completely worth you just kill it overnight in a moment. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. So I, uh, a lot of times when I think about culture, I actually like the, the vision, mission, value things. I, ha I think it has a place. Mm -hmm. The problem with most of them is that it, it goes from art to wallpaper really fast. <laughs> right. So, you know, when you're, when you first design it, you're really proud of it. You put it up, everybody sees it. Great. You have a couple of trainings, fantastic. And then over time it becomes invisible. You don't yeah. see it anymore. You don't live it anymore. It's nonsense. And so what I typically like to do is I pick on competency models all the time, but I like to ruthlessly rip out any sort of uh, competency model. If you tell me there's, you know, 14 levels of leadership and here's how you do it if you're in this nonsense, right? So I like to rip it out. And I, I say, people think in threes, give them three things to focus on, yeah. make them part of the performance system so that we're not only saying they're valuable, we're going to pay you on those things. Mm. And we're going to talk about it at every stage of the cycle. So yeah. if I say, let's say, let's, let's example, um, efficiency, let's pick that. We think efficiency for this company is really important. It may not be for every company, this company it is. So we're going to drill that into the position descriptions, right? Why, how is that important for your position? Mm -hmm. How is it important for your performance? Do you get paid on it? Do you get developed with it? Is you thinking, you know, about talent reviews and moving through, follow it through the food chain. And maybe yeah. yours is accountable, whatever it is, it is, but pick a few, make people focus on it and drill it in so that I can wake you up from a dead sleep. And you tell me what the three things are. So Tim, something you said in there, 
I think it's so vital. I want to hone in on it. So many people, I think, fail to make it clear what those values look like in action versus just it's a concept. Yes. And also paying attention and communicating with each other when we do things that are out of alignment with it. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that happen. And you, like if you watch the video, you go, oh, my God, they just killed their value of this. But no one knew it. Or maybe one person know it, knew it but didn't speak up. Mm. So speak to the importance of, I like the word actionizing, but making those values tangible versus just conceptual on that wall. Yeah, I think it's very practical how you go about doing it is number one is that you align it to performance. So if I think they're important enough, they should be important enough to be rated and they should be important enough to be paid. So let's say I have three values Mm. that are critical and not even call them values. I call them high performance behaviors. These are three things that I want. I want you to to do, to exhibit at all levels across the organization. And I'm going to say that they're so important that I'm going to give them a percentage. And let's say for the sake of an argument that what you do is worth 70% of your, your target and how you do it is worth 30. Now you may say 60, 40, 50, 50, the percentage doesn't matter, but it's important enough that I'm going to rate you on it. Okay. And it's going to come up in your performance review. It's going to be linked to your compensation. So by definition, by process, you're going to pay attention to it, but that's not enough. The thing that you need to do beyond that is teach people how to recognize it, how Mm -hmm. to to not only recognize it, but then how to do it. And it's very simple because we think about, sometimes we overcomplicate things around, oh, they have to be a goal, they have to be this, they have to be that. Sometimes you just need to listen for it. (laughs) So I'll give you an example. Like, let's say we pick accountability and we want everybody to be accountable. Well, ask them, what does accountability sound like? How do you know when someone's being accountable, either for something that they did well or, or a mistake that happened? That's mm. going to sound different, right? And there are people who you can walk up a ladder and say, well, they're, they're, they're not doing it. They're totally unaware of a situation to where they own and totally drive solutions. Well, at each level, and you could align that directly to your performance system so it's crystal clear, the expectation. And once you define that, then you're golden. Mm. That makes sense? Yeah, the... You, you mentioned something in there. I'm going to just pluck out one word. You mentioned the word listen. Listen for it. And that is, <laughs> that's funny because I often use that phrase when I'm coaching. I say I'm listening for the next question. That's what I call it. <laughs> uh, I'm not listening for the answer, but the next question. How do people learn how to do that? Because I don't think that's an innate skill to listen and, and to see it differently. You know, it's, it's funny. I think we, I, I would say it is a little bit um, natural, right? Because we listen all the time. We may not hear, right? We have to maybe do a little bit better job of that. But all, all the things that we, we experience in life, we see them, we feel them, we touch them. And I'll do another analogy. Where I learned this from is actually, we mentioned flying, the air traffic controller, flying a plane. When you go and take flight lessons, they, they have you do very specific things. Anytime you go to do a control, you have to look at it, you have to say it, and you have to touch it, right? <laughs> you have to do all of those things every single time, every, because you may miss one. You may look at it and not really see it. You may touch it and not really feel it. You know, all of, so you have to do all of those things. So when you're approaching folks, 
that's the kind of counsel that I give them is like, you know what accountability is. We've all been there. We know when someone's let us down and we know when someone has come through for us. And how did you notice what that was? Is it something that you felt? Was it something that you heard? Was it something that you saw? What something that you experienced? Was it kinesthetic? However that is, that's going to be different for every person. You need to recognize that. So what we would do is bring folks into a class and say, if it's important enough that we're going to pay you for it, we're going to show you how this works. <laughs> and we would give them examples, even simple examples, and say, see how this levels up in each of those categories. So you can begin to, to train folks to, to, to embark on their natural tendencies, if you will. Hmm. That's, a, that's an interesting conversation. I'm not... <laughs> I'm not, yeah, I, I guess I'm going to say I'm not sure I agree because I think people are natural listeners, but most people don't see what's happening in my experience. They don't actually see what's happening. Somebody does. Is it an issue of being fully present? Well, I think that's part of it. But I mean, I, I constantly, I'll see it in, I'll see it in companies. So here, let me give you a really quick example. I was working with a team about a month ago and the opening question of the group, it was a team session was tell me for you, what's the biggest challenge or opportunity for the company? What is really holding the company back? Is the <laughs> question. Very different answers. The first person who courageously spoke up said, I think one of the biggest issues for me is that we don't consistently follow processes and procedures. Not surprising to hear that because that's pretty typical. And then I asked the follow-up, I said, how does that impact you? <laughs> she said two things. It makes my job more difficult and it also makes me feel unsafe. Mm. That was a very vulnerable comment. Yes. Five minutes later, one of their managers says, my issue is that they don't let me do things my way. <laughs> and they give me a hard time about processes and procedures. And I'm listening to them. I'm watching this woman that said the other thing. And I'm thinking, she just told you that when you don't follow the process, she feels unsafe. And you just said that you are clueless yeah. of the impact of that, in my opinion, or you don't care. But then when I asked the president, she said, oh, I didn't even notice that. Wow. So that to me is the kind of things that yeah. for me are just. You go, oh, my God, did he just say that? And what just happened to trust and all that? She, and that's not a bad thing. She just doesn't, hasn't honed that skill, yeah, I think, it, of listening differently. It's a, really, it's a really important point that you're making because it's, I think it's a, a lot in there. There's the, the pause to make space for that to happen. Yes. Right? You have to do that. There is the, the required skill to develop it. Right? So I go back to that um, airplane piece. You know, it's funny, you look at pilots, what are they doing? You know, as they're scanning the area, they're looking at their map, they're looking at the instruments, they're checking for traffic, and they're looking for a place to crash. <laughs> and, well, and hopefully land. <laughs> well, no, no, actually, they're looking for a place to crash land, right? So if the engine yeah. stops right now, what yep. do I do? Right? Or, yeah. Like, so, so you, but you follow that pattern over and over again. And the, the thing is, is that it's unnatural at first, but once you do it, it becomes that second, that second nature. And I think Jeff, it's a really good point because, you know, in, in that um, example that you provided, both parties need to see, well, what's important. So yes, I feel unsafe. If, you know, we don't follow procedures, the other person is saying, I feel constricted by those same processes. So is there validity to both are both listening? And then who's the arbitrator of decision and how does that work? 
So I think you're right. I think actually I, I, I do buy into what you're saying. I think there's a lot there that needs to be examined. It's a great point. Yeah. One of the things that we had talked about before is, is just your ability to build these high, high performance cultures, but also to rapidly scale organizations. You, you took one company from 400 to 700 people in a couple of years. And I'd really like to know, and, and for the audience to understand what it takes to do that. And I'm sure it's a combination of hiring practices, of you know, having, having the attraction in the company itself, but then also probably some pretty good onboarding. But please tell us what your secret sauce is. <laughs> part, part, of it, part of it is the culture itself. So there's a general attraction to the organization, yeah. the openness for where you are today and where you're looking to go. Because I mm -hmm. think people by definition want to be part of a story. And yes. so they want to see kind of, okay, what is the story? Is this just another job that I have mm. and I can get that same job anywhere? Or am I part of a mission that is taking us from A to B and I can see myself contributing to that in a macro level? So I think part of it is, is demonstrating in each interview the macro story that people can place themselves in. And then the second part of it is going to that micro level where you're specific about their role. So one of the most useless things I think uh, in in HR in the in the world of business is a job description. Um, it's it's you know a laundry list of activities and wish lists that people want, and just to cover the bases on the bottom of it, they say other duties as described or right or assigned. So it's kind of there. So rather than that, I, I'm a big fan of of um, role profiles that say you know here are the three or four things that are must have business drivers. How you specifically are going to um, help us drive the business and you align that to strategy and then you and only then do you take it down to here's the, the tasks and the competencies that are required so i'm giving you a blueprint of success i'm showing you the percentage of importance for each of those mm -hmm. and then you could make a decision am i going to be successful because scaling an organization is important but scaling it with people who are going to be successful in the yeah. role and not burn out in six months is even more important wait, wait, wait. it's not just about warm bodies yeah yeah Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm not sure you just said this, Tim, but what I heard you say in that is if you want to scale your business, scale your people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good way to phrase it. I mean, ultimately, those people that you were talking about that that are looking at it and saying, OK, I want to be part of that story. They're really saying as the company grows, I should be growing with it, which means that I'm going to have more opportunities. I'm going to get some training. I'm going to be better when I decide to do something else. So let me ask you this question, Tim, uh, as we wrap up, something Craig just said, talking about if we're grow the business is growing, people will grow with it. But I'm wondering which comes first? <laughs> because I mean, there are people, there are businesses who have grown and their people haven't grown. Right. Because they don't support them. They don't encourage them. They don't develop them. And I think there's very few companies proportionally who say, we're going to grow our people. And by doing that, we'll grow our business. Mm, great point. Um, yeah, I, what's I been your experience with that? There's a little context, I think, with that. Is, it depends on the, the speed by which your growth horizon is, what you need to accomplish. And I don't think it's as simple as, as like one is the right answer. Uh, and the reason I say that is, you know, depending on the scale of your organization, where you're growing, you, you're going to adopt a buy or build strategy. So you, you may be operating in a growth region that um, you're going to need to plug people in, uh, buy from the outside and expedite growth. 
Mm-hmm. That is not sustainable, though. That's not something you can do in a long term. Um, it's also much more expensive. And mm-hmm. so, you know, overall, you're going to want to grow your people, and that will amp up your business. Uh, so it is a little bit of a chicken and egg thing. But I think you have to be very specific around which methodology you employ and when and where. Well, a piece that you're probably having a glancing blow on is acquisition. So acquiring other companies to help that growth cycle that you're looking at. And with that is, is fraud, all sorts of other things and making sure that there's a culture fit and, you know, most, most mergers fail. Um, so was there any secret that you've seen in, in doing that? The, the merger piece is really hard. The acquisition piece is really hard because from a talent perspective, you get very limited um, information data on people. I mean, let, let's face it, you get headcount reports, you get number scale position, but you don't get much color commentary around uh, folks and, and performance. And if it is, it's not your data. So you don't know the validity of the data. You'll get um, information around top line folks um, but the question that you have to ask is there's a, there's a, like a natural assumption that your guys are the best and there's got to get slotted in. The brave question is, are our best good enough? Hmm. And, you know, how do we really look at a talent and figure out how do we grow the business? And, and the hardest thing to do is to take yourself out of the equation and realize that, Hey, you know, maybe, um, there's players from the other place that are, that are better slotted. And that's, that's a really tough thing to do. Maybe I'm not the right person. (laughs) Exactly. It might might just be me, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, Tim, this has been so rich, uh, so rich, so enlightening for me, a lot of new ways to look at leadership and culture. Uh, We always want to give our guests a chance to highlight or promote anything in particular. And what is that for you? Uh, I I bounce uh, my writing between, um, fiction and nonfiction. And I just finished a fiction book. So this is probably total off, totally off topic. Huh? <laughs> I have a new novel out that's called Life Aches <laughs> in and out of the fishbowl. So there you go. Oh, wow. Right. I'll have to check it out. I, I got to do my every other book, my every other fiction book. We'll check that out. So Tim, what is the best way for people to connect with you? Uh, you can do at Plotline Leadership or timtotere.com or just on LinkedIn. Oh, so all sorts of easy ways to get you. We'll put that all in the notes. So we always wrap up with a couple of questions. First question for you, Tim, is uh, you get the chance to have a conversation, perhaps dinner with someone living. Who's that person? And what's the one question you're going to make sure to ask them? <laughs> well, this is, a, again, a little off topic, but my absolute favorite musician in the world is Billy Joel. And at the <clears throat> end of every single concert, he says, and this would be the, the, the one bad word in the whole episode. He says, don't take no shit from nobody. And I'd love to know when he adopted that practice because it sounds like really good advice. Uh, awesome. Wow. I love that. Uh, and the second question is, what's that book? What's that one book that you'd recommend that would have what you believe the greatest impact on their growth journey? So I, I referenced a lot of martial art lessons uh, throughout the podcast. And, and where some of this comes from is Funakoshi's book called The 20 Guiding Principles of hmm. Karate. And I think it's going to be really helpful for folks. Wow, I love that. Well, Tim, thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing. And I very genuinely and deeply want to thank you for the work you're doing and the way you're showing up and bringing your humble leadership to organizations because it makes a difference. So thank you. Appreciate that. Thanks.
you enjoy the Leadership Junkies podcast and you want to grow your leadership, we have a new course for you called Become a Confident Leader. In this course, we will share some of the keys to becoming more confident in your leadership and also to become more impactful. Go to cartavera.com slash confident to find out more. See you on the inside. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.